Hello everyone, welcome back to History Snippets. My name is Aaron, and today I'm going to read a story to my friend Sky, who has no clue who, what, or when I'm going to be reading about. How are you doing, Sky? I am excited as always. That's not the right reaction to this one. <laughs> no <kidding>. one. <laughs> okay, so let's jump straight into it. Um, Elizabeth Jane Cochran was born on <clears throat> May... <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. I, I, can you say that name one, one, more, one more time? Elizabeth Jane? And after that? Was born in... Oh, right, the Cochran. That put you off. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yes. Um, no, she's uh, she's named after the infamous escaped chicken uh, raid in the 1820s that plagued... Uh, uh, she probably went to the Poultry Academy as well, didn't she? Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> so, Elizabeth Jane Cochran was born on May 5th, 1864 in Cochran's Mills which is now part of Burrell Township of Pennsylvania. Now, Cochran's Mills was named after her father, Michael Cochran. Now, why would an entire suburb of Pittsburgh be named after him, you ask? Well, Michael Cochran was an Irish immigrant who came to the U.S. in 1790. He had nothing when he arrived and began his life as a simple laborer. Then he became a mill worker. Then he saved up enough money and bought the mill. Then he bought a nearby farmhouse for his family. Then he bought all the surrounding land surrounding the farmhouse and mill, so he owned the whole area. Then he became a merchant, then a postmaster, then an associate justice of Pennsylvania. At that point, since he owned the whole territory and was on the Pennsylvania Council, they named the area Cochran's Mills after him. <laughs> Please tell me it's, it's still not called that. No, uh, now it's a borough township of Pennsylvania. Yeah, someone made a right decision there. That, that is a go-getter, dude. That is, uh, yeah, no, that is a goal-getter. Yeah, definitely. I, I would love to do an episode on him, but that is literally all we know about him. Like, that's it. Like, he came from nothing, pretty much slowly bought up the entire area, got it named after him, and yeah. Yeah, just a good businessman. Oh, an amazing one. So, um, Michael Cochran married Catherine Murphy and got busy having ten children with her. Now... I couldn't figure out why, but their marriage just kind of ended. Either Catherine died or they got divorced, I'm not really sure. Uh, but anyways, he married a second time, this time to a Mary Jane Kennedy, and he had five more children with her. So, 15 what? in total. One of these children was Elizabeth Jane Cochran, who we'll be talking about today. So, during her youth, uh, Elizabeth was called Pinky, because she almost exclusively wore pink. As she grew older, she wanted to come across as a more sophisticated woman, so she got rid of the nickname and she added an E to her surname, which went from being Cochran to Cochran, but with an E on the end. Literally pronounced the exact same. C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E. It just looks more sophisticated, I guess, with an E on the end. I, okay. I don't... Uh, that doesn't fix the initial problem, which is the, you know, the first part of that word. Right. Hmm. Well, at the age of seven, she moved to a boarding school after, um, yeah, she moved to a boarding school, but after only a year, her father passed away, and the family lost most of the property in Mills. Without the funding to pay for the boarding school, Elizabeth was forced to move back home. The family basically went from being really, really, really wealthy to barely getting by overnight. In 1880, when Elizabeth was 16, her mother moved the whole family to Pittsburgh, where they ran a boarding home. Soon Elizabeth's mother married a brutal man who would abuse Elizabeth, and after a few months she couldn't deal with it anymore, so she just bailed. Um, now she had to get by alone, unmarried, and uneducated in the 1880s Pittsburgh. 
She did small jobs at factories and lived in a tiny two-room apartment. Now, one day in 1885, Elizabeth was reading the newspaper. She was reading the Pittsburgh Dispatch. The paper had published a letter from a, quote, anxious father. In the letter, the father asked, said that he had five unmarried girls and he didn't know what to do with them. He asked the paper for advice. Under the letter, the paper had published the response from one of its columnists, Erasmus Wilson, who went by the pen name The Quiet Observer. Erasmus answered the anxious father's letter with a long article titled, quote, What Girls Are Good For? Oh, yeah. No, I, mm-hmm. The article stated that a girl's purpose was to birth children and tend to the house. That's it. It scolded women for attempting to have an education or career, calling them, quote, a monstrosity, which he for sure said through a monocle and a giant bushy beard. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can picture this guy uh, in front of me. Yeah. Grumble, grumble. What? You want the job? Monstrosity! <laughs> grumble, grumble, grumble. Mm. He said that women should have no ambitions higher than the home. Erasmus even went so far as to admire China's then policy of killing newborn girls, saying that the act saved them from a dull life and would help deal with the current surplus of unmarried women. Lovely. Was he married by any chance? I hope not. Hope not, yeah. For his Mm -hmm. wife's sake, yeah. So here's the thing. Being unmarried wouldn't be an issue if women were allowed to actually have an education or job. Hmm. The problem is that if you're not allowed to have an education, not allowed to have a craft, then obviously being unmarried, like, marriage is the only way you have a living. Like, that's the only way you have money in a house over your head. Being unmarried wouldn't be a, a sentence, like that, a death sentence, if you're allowed to be educated. Obviously, yeah. Anyways, so Elizabeth was reading this article, and she was not having it. She wrote a heavily worded letter to the editor of the column, using the pen name Lonely Orphan Girl. When the editor, George Maiden, read it, he was so impressed with her writing, he ran an advertisement in the paper asking the author to identify herself. Elizabeth went to introduce herself to the editor, and he offered her a part-time job as a writer. Elizabeth accepted and headed home. There she wrote her first article for the Pittsburgh Dispatch, a rebuttal to the What Girls Are Good For column, titled The Girl Puzzle. (laughs) In the article, she talks about the value of women. Now, not high-class or wealthy women, but, quote, those without talent, without beauty, without money. She uses the article to raise awareness and empathy for women in these situations. Quote, Can they that have full and plenty of this world's goods realize what it is to be a poor working woman, abiding in one or two bare rooms, without fire enough to keep warm, while her threadbare clothes refuse to protect her from the wind and cold, and denying herself necessary food that her little ones may not go hungry, fearing the landlord's frown and threat to cast her out and sell what little she has, begging for employment of any kind that she may earn enough to pay for the bare room she calls home, no one to speak kindly to or encourage her, nothing to make life worth living. Holy shit. To the point. <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth then goes on to point out how the current solution to this problem, hiring these unmarried women to work in factories, is actually terrible. Mm-hmm. Quote, the pay may in some instances be better, but from 7 a.m. until 6 p.m., except for 30 minutes at noon, she is shut up in a noisy, unwholesome place 
When duties are over for the day, with tired limbs and aching head, she hastens sadly to a cheerless home. How eagerly she looks forward to payday, for that little might means so much at home. Thus, day after day, week after week, sick or well, she labors on that she may live. What do you think of this, butterflies of fashions, ladies of leisure? This poor girl does not win fame by running off with a coachman. She does not hug or kiss a pug, nor does she judge people by their clothes and grammar. And some of them are ladies, perfect ladies, more so than many who have had every advantage. She's taking shots at. Uh, yeah, no, I. <laughs> some... Was she like? What kind of education did she have? Nada. Uh huh. She's well spoken for someone who grew up working. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she can write better than I can at this oh, point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I was reading these quotes and I was like, damn. Right. <laughs> these are these are cannonball shots fired. Yeah. She continues on with how boys are not limited in the same degree as women. Quote, If girls were boys, quickly would it be said, start them where they will. They can, if ambitious, win a name and fortune. Now, obviously, her father was very, very... Mm. Yeah. Uh, she saw this firsthand. Uh, how many wealth and great men could be pointed out who started it in the depths? But where are the many women? Let a youth start as an errand boy, and he will work his way up until he is one of the firm. Girls are just as smart a great deal quicker to learn, why, then, can they not do the same? As all occupations for women are filled, why not start some new ones? Instead of putting the little girls in factories, let them be employed in the capacity of messenger boys or office boys. It would be healthier. They would have a chance to learn, their ideas would become broader, and they would make as good, if not better, women in the end. It is asserted by storekeepers that women make the best clerks. Why not send them out as merchant travelers? They can talk as well as men. At least men claim that it is a noted fact that they talk a great deal more and faster. If their ability at home for selling exceeds a man's, why not put it abroad? Their lives would be brighter, their health better, their pocketbooks fuller, unless their employees would do as now and give them half wages because they are women. She's, she's got it. She's straight to the point. I've got a feeling she's going to prove her own points down the road. So... Elizabeth's article continues on. Now, I'm not... There's, like, three more pages. Like, she hammered this home. Um, mm. She lectured the mindset that women didn't have the same potential as men. She used her own experiences as a lonely factory worker as a topic. When she delivered the finished article to George Madden, he was blown away. He published the entire article and then offered her a full-time position at the Pittsburgh Dispatch after, literally, she mm -hmm. was working there for half a day, um, which yep. she accepted. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time, it was normal for women uh, journalists to use a pen name. Elizabeth decided on the name Nellie Bly with a Y. Nellie with a Y? After the main character from the popular song Nellie Bly by Stephen Foster. But her editor accidentally wrote Nellie with an I-E Bly. Uh, and that's what stuck. Now, since this is the name she's famously known by, uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners right now are like, oh, that's her. Uh, we're going to be calling her Nellie from here on out. Yeah. So... Now, with a full-time job and the ambition to provo provoke change, Nellie began writing investigative articles of, uh, about women factory workers. Her articles were raw. They described the gruesome conditions the women worked under and the desperation they faced da uh, daily. And Nellie was not afraid to rip factory workers a new one. Like, these were scathing, brutal, nothing was glazed over, nothing was put a shine on. It was just a raw train of thought of what she saw in these places. Um, and it was very unusual for the time. Like, you felt like when you are reading her stuff, you felt mm. like you were in the factory watching this happen. Um, it didn't take long before the newspaper received a ton of complaints from factory workers. And Nellie <laughs> was transferred 
into the women's pages department, ordered to write about topics like fashion and culture and gardening. This was the usual role for women journalists at the time. Naturally, Nellie said fuck that and bailed for Mexico, deciding instead to work as a foreign correspondent. Uh, I don't. I don't get that. The editor is like, "Wow, you're brutal, and you love to do investigative journal journalism, and you love to yeah, like you're obviously you don't want to write about gardening. So I'm obviously gonna hire you on the spot, and then I'm gonna try and have you write about like he hired her because she wasn't the type of woman who'd write about gardening, and then he tried to force her to write about. I don't get it. Like, I mean, I can imagine him getting like a hundred angry letters from factory factory like owners and I, like yeah. I'm sorry, Nelly. This one is just two pages of grumble. It's handwritten too. Like, it's just grumble. <laughs> Side grumble too. I don't know. You gotta go write about gardening. <laughs> so, she traveled throughout Mexico for six months, writing a book she would later title Six Months in Mexico." The book went into a great detail of the lives and society of the Mexican people, which was not really something that was written about at the time. Um, she wrote about their poverty, specifically the widespread addiction to playing the lottery. At the time, there was, like, a massive kind of a governmental lottery going on in Mexico. Um, yeah. It's weird. Mexico was ruled by a dictator, and he had, like, a governmental lottery running. And the entire... I think it was, like, a morale thing, because he was mm -hmm. a terrible dictator, and the entire country was just poor as shit. Like, everyone lived in terrible conditions. So he started up a lottery so that everyone kind of had a hope of winning and, you know, try to... Yeah, yeah, it's a people. typical, like, <clears throat> we're all dying, but one day, one of us is gonna win that yeah, lottery. The golden ticket to the, the, the yeah. factory, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, anyways, people would sell their clothes to buy tickets in hope of winning uh, an escape from the pauper's life. Like, yeah. it didn't help the poor, it just made them worse. Of course not, yeah. Um, she also wrote about uh, cultural ceremonies and weddings and holidays and the day-to-day -day life of the people. She even had a chapter on how popular marijuana was, describing her experience with some soldiers. Quote, The soldiers have this herb named marijuana, which they roll into small cigarros and smoke. It produces intoxication, which lasts for five days, and for that period, they are in paradise. It has no ill after effects, yet the use is forbidden by law. It is commonly used among prisoners. One cigarro is made, and the prisoners, all sitting in a ring, partake of it. The smoker takes a draw and blows the smoke into the mouth of the nearest man. He likewise gives it to another, and so on around the circle. One cigarro will intoxicate the whole lot for the length of five days. Five days! That's I I have no idea what kind of marijuana this woman I, is experiencing, but that's... They, they found, like, the holy grail of, like... Oh, shit, yeah. <sighs> Whatever strain of marijuana that is, it is extinct nowadays. I'm five sure. days. Five days. That, that is that even enjoyable? Like you want to you want to have a nice relaxing evening. You know what? Five days of that. I've eaten seventeen bags of onions. <laughs> I don't know what to do, man. <laughs> Day six of the marijuana wars. <laughs> Imagine if you're someone who gets paranoid or something, oh, and it's like God. a first time, like, yeah, oh, I'll try Jesus. this, and you've got the worst week of your life, just yeah, like... usually people are like, don't worry, man, just chill, it'll be down in an hour. Yeah, Not yeah, like, you'll just... Yeah, I'm sorry, man, uh, look, when Thursday comes around, you'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I, I don't know if that was an exaggeration, or if maybe it wasn't marijuana, something that, else? That's where I was I going, yeah, I'm... Yeah. But... Was probably mixed with something yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. For the last five fucking days. Yes. Yeah. Anyways, um, while Nelly was in Mexico, uh, Mexico, a local journalist was arrested for writing a critical article about the then ruling dictator Porfirio Diaz. 
Of course, Nelly got in on this and yep. spoke in defense of the journalists and then went out to the streets and was protesting against the arrest. And then she was protesting in local papers in Mexico. And she sent reports back to the Pittsburgh Dits Dispatch, which they published, which were speaking out against the dictator. So when the Mexican authorities caught wind of her reports, they hunted her down and threatened her with arrest. Nelly then decided that six months was good enough for her book and left the country back to America. <laughs> It was originally planned to be a year in Mexico, wasn't oh, it? Yeah. Like, like the titles really just scribbled out. It's like <laughs> six months in Mexico. Exactly, yeah. Um, the second she got back home to Pittsburgh, she wrote a huge editorial called Diaz a tyrannical crazed czar who oppressed the Mexican people and misused his power to control the press, all of which was true. Mm -hmm. After that article... George Madden tried yet again to tame Nellie, ordering her to report on local theater and art instead, since gardening wasn't really her thing. Mm -hmm. So Nellie quit the Pittsburgh Dispatch, leaving a note for her editor, quote, Well, I'm off for New York. Look out for me. Signed, Bly. <laughs> I expected Canada, not gonna lie. I expected her just like... <laughs> I went south, now north. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing, though. I'm off for New York. Look out for me. Signed, yeah. Bly. Is that, that's yeah. it. It sounds optimistic, but that's a that's a threat. There's a small threat. In that is a threat. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like it's a very polite threat. Look out for me. That's a, that's a, I'm coming back. Although it was the 1800s, that was probably a, a very like a grave insult back then, wasn't it? Oh shit! From a woman? Yeah. Oh my. Fuck yeah. So in New York, Nellie lived poor and without a job for four months until she managed to convince Joseph Pulitzer of the New York world to give her a job. Now, Joseph Pulitzer, the guy the Pulitzer Award is named after, is a fucking terrible human being, and I'm very much going to do an episode on him someday. He loved to exploit street orphans to sell his papers, for example. <laughs> so, um, in the past months in New York, Nellie had heard gruesome stories about lunatic asylums, specifically the Woman's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island. She decided to bring its crimes to light and write a detailed report on the asylum and its practices. Only problem was that the asylum didn't allow journalists on the island, much oh boy. less in the door. But what they did allow was insane women. So that's uh, what Nellie had to become. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... It's really hard to convince people you're not insane once you've been there. Hmm. No, surely, surely, once you're on your inside, you can be like, well, I feel better, doctor. <laughs> so, no, okay, this woman's, she's got bigger balls than I have, that's for sure. I would oh, yeah, no. willingly go into an insane asylum in the 1880s at the height of, like, lobotomies? Fuck, uh -uh. no. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. Um, so, she spent the night practicing expressions in the mirror, perfecting grimaces of fear and mania, and then she checked herself into a local boarding house the following morning. That evening, she refused to go to bed, screaming at the boarders that she was afraid of them and that they looked, quote, crazy. The owners of the boarding home decided Nellie was obviously a nutcase, and they summoned the police the following morning. They arrived, arrested Nellie, and took her to a courtroom, where she claimed to have amnesia and only screamed, quote, I can't remember! I can't remember! Over and over and over again during the entire trial. The judge theorized that she may have been drugged and ordered a medical examination. Three separate doctors examined her. The first said she was, quote, positively demented. The second said, quote, I considered it a hopeless case. She needs to be put somewhere where someone will take care of her. 
And the third, the head of the insane pavilion at the Belleville Hospital declared her, quote, undoubtedly insane. Her case picked up media attention, with the New York Sun writing, quote, who is this insane girl? And the New York Times writing of the, quote, mysterious wife with the wild, haunted look in her eyes and desperate cries. I guess it was a slow news day. Uh-huh. Naturally, the judge declared Nellie insane and committed her to the woman's lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island. From the inside, Nellie experienced the gruesome, downright medieval conditions of the insane asylum personally. The food was of a simple gruel of grain with rotten beef and bread that was dry, burnt, and unraised dough. The water was stagnant and undrinkable. Everywhere was filthy and covered in waste and feces, with rats crawling all over them during the night. Lovely. Whenever they were to bathe, cold, reused water was simply poured over them with buckets. Quote, My teeth shattered and my limbs were goose-fleshed and blue with cold. Suddenly I got, one after the other, three buckets of water over my head. Ice-cold water, too. Into my eyes, my ears, my nose, and my mouth. So just waterboarding them every time they need to bathe. Yeah, yeah. Patients were expected to sit entirely still on a hardwood bench the entire day, with no blankets and only a simple gown to keep them warm. The unruly and dangerous patients were tied together with rope and left in a pile in the middle of the room. So if oh. there were violent ones, they'd just tie them and, like, there's just a mass. Oh, these guys are crazy. They'll kill each other. Well, better tie them together, then. I don't, like, what? it said it would tie, they tied them together to one another and put them yeah. in the middle of the room in a pile. That's why. At least just I, shackle them to a bed. Don't tie them together in a mass. Ugh. I, I'm pretty sure if you weren't insane when you got there, you pretty much were that, like, yeah. Yeah. The nurses and staff were brutal to the patients, yelling at them if they talked, beating them for any slight mistake. After a few days, Nellie concluded that she was not the only sane woman in the asylum. Many of the patients were actually mentally stable women who happened to get locked up for one reason or another. Remember, this is the height of hysteria, so literally anything could be deemed mania at that time. Like, if your mother died and you were depressed, it was mania and you were locked up. If you witnessed a traumatic event, like a, like a horse wagon crash or something, and you were having nightmares, it was mania and you were locked up. Like, there was nothing. There was such a lot of shit. Imagine that. Oh no, her husband died and she's sad. Well, better lock her up with the well, crazy she's sad people. Because she's uneducated, it's not gonna have any money. Like, it's, yeah, you literally Jeez. had to do nothing to get locked up. The bar oh. was so low. Um, so, some of the women in the asylum were actually sane when they arrived, but after years on the inside, yeah. became insane, creating this vile circle where they only got worse and worse and worse and would never be released. Mm -hmm. Now, Nellie did not tell the New York world where she'd gone. So after <laughs> 10 days, the New York world finally figured out where the fuck Nellie had disappeared to and managed to convince the asylum to free her. Thank God. Yes. She had no backup plan for this. She just dove into it. She had no get out what? plan. What? No, she didn't tell anyone. She just disappeared and got herself locked up. Like she had no oh. idea how she was going to get out of this. She just, she's like, I'll figure it out. I'll wing it. I'm good at improv, let's go. Yeah, like, I'll go into these death camps. I'm sure I'll find a way to escape them. On an island. On an island. Oh my god. So, when she was freed, she wrote an article called 10 Days in a Madhouse, which would later be published as a book, where she detailed her experiences. Quote, What 
Accepting torture would produce insanity quicker than this treatment. Here is a class of women sent to be cured. I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action, which has proven their ability, to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up, and make her sit from 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. on straight back benches, do not allow her to talk or move during these hours, give her no reading, and let her know nothing of the world or its doings, give her bad food and harsh treatment, and see how long it will take to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I left the insane ward with pleasure and regret, she would later write in her account for the world. Pleasure that I was once more able to enjoy the free breath of heaven. Regret that I could not have brought with me some of the unfortunate women who lived and suffered with me, and who I am now convinced are just as sane as I was and am now myself. After the, sta uh, after the New York World published the report, the staff at the asylum had to explain how Nellie, a sane woman, had managed to deceive three professional physicians. They were unable to answer this. Mm -hmm. The report triggered a grand jury which launched a full investigation into the asylum, and they asked for Nellie to assist by detailing her experiences. The jury's report resulted in the Department of Public Charities and Correction, the governmental branch responsible for managing asylums, to get an $850,000 increase in their budget to improve the asylums. This is the equivalent to $21 million today. Holy shit. The report also required asylums from this point onward to crack hard down on examinations, limiting only the most seriously ill and demented uh, from being committed into the asylums. The report caused the first large-scale reform of asylums in the U.S. and made Nellie a household name. She was now known across the U.S. and famous in New York. Nellie then made this her strategy. Infiltrating sweatshops, jails, even legislature, where she exposed corruption in bribery in the governmental lobbyist system. Every time she went undercover, she'd emerge with a massive report. At this point, she was so famous, all the paper had to do was include her name in the headline, and sales doubled. <laughs> her articles provoked public reaction to injustices across the states and are responsible for initiating many reforms. But she's not done yet. Oh boy. A year later... Nellie was relaxing at home, reading a book named Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling I know where this is going. A fictional tale about a man named Phileas Fogg who made a bet with some friends to travel around the globe in 80 days. Nellie decided to prove that this could not only be done, which hadn't been yet, by the way, but also that she could beat the fictional character Phileas's record of 80 days. Of course, she, why not? She went to her editor and described her mission. Her editor, he, uh... Hold on a second. Sorry, close that. There we go. Um, he liked the idea, but he didn't want to agree to it then and there. A year later, Nellie was called into his office, and he asked Nellie, quote, Can you start the Around the World thing day after tomorrow? To which Nellie replied, quote, I can start this moment if necessary. With two days' notice, she packed a sturdy overcoat, a couple pairs of underwear, a small bag of toiletries, 200 in British pounds and gold, and the dress she was wearing. And on November 14th, 1889, at 9.40 a.m., she boarded the Augusta Victoria, a massive steamship of the Hamburg-America line, to begin her 40,070-kilometer journey. At the same time, the New York newspaper, the Cosmopolitan, had heard of Nellie, and the New York World stunt. 
and decide to take them up on the challenge, sponsoring one of their female reporters, Elizabeth Bisland, to travel the opposite way around the world and beat both the fictional Phileas and Nellie's time. In order to not lose the people's interest in Nellie's trip, the New York world would publish daily updates on where she was and what she was doing, and they began a Nellie Bly guessing match, where readers could estimate Bly's travel times to the second, betting on when she'd arrive at so-and-so city. Winners would win money, and the grand prize, going to the person who correctly guessed her return to the U.S., would win a free trip to Europe. Damn, that sounds awesome. That sounds super fun. Yeah. So Nellie began traveling, using steamships and railroads. She would send short telegraphs to the New York world, keeping them updated on her journey, but her longer reports had to be sent by letter and were often weeks delayed. She left east from New York, heading to England, and then from England she went to France. In France, she met Jules Verne in the town of Amiens, <laughs> who loved what she was doing and encouraged her to break the record of his fictional character. <laughs> from France, she went to Brin Brindisi in Italy, sure, then to the mm -hmm. Suez Canal, then to Egypt, then to Colombo, which is now Ceylon, then to the Strait settlements of Penang in Singapore, where she bought a monkey. <laughs> um, in Asia, the railroad systems were rather unreliable, or non-existent, meaning mm -hmm. that she did a lot of walking and biking and horse riding to get through Asia, making it the slowest part of her journey. When she arrived in Hong Kong, she heard about a nearby leper colony, which was like an asylum, except you're sent there to fall apart alongside other human beings like a Jenga tower. Naturally, Nellie took a few days off from her travels to go undercover and do a scathing report on the colony, forcing a sort of reform there locally about that. Oh my god. Just like the idea of like, I'm on a, uh, currently going on a race. Uh, it's about like every day counts. Oh, these people need help. Well, I can take a couple of I'm days out of my busy schedule. In a leper colony in 1880s China. <laughs> I would look at an image of a leper colony from 1880s China and die. That would motivate me to move even faster across. Is there property on the moon? <laughs> so, um, it was only after her arrival at Hong Kong that Nellie learned about Elizabeth Bislin's involvement and that she was actually in a race. So she picked up the pace. <laughs> okay. Nellie left for Japan and from Japan went back to the U.S. on the White Star Liner, the Oceanic. Due to bad weather, she arrived in San Francisco on January 21st, 1890, two days behind schedule. Thus, she missed her train from San Francisco to New York. The owner of the New York World, Joseph Pulitzer, then chartered an entire private train exclusively for her across the U.S. And she arrived in New Jersey on January 25th, 1890, at 3.51 p.m. The journey around the world took her... 72 days, 6 hours, and 11 minutes. When Holy she got shit. off the train, <clears throat> a crowd of over 10,000 people were there cheering her name. There was a full brass band playing music. She was paraded through New York, and there was a fireworks display that evening. Oh, Elizabeth. Um, well, she too got caught up in a bad storm, causing her to miss the connection. So instead mm -hmm. of traveling from Europe on the extremely fast ship, the Utruria, she had to take an old cargo ship named the Bothynia. She didn't arrive for over a week later, and that's kind of her. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she still made the whole trip in a pretty short time, though, didn't she? Yeah, no, she did. I mean, yeah. get credit where credit's due. It was still like an you know seventy something days or whatever. So yeah. Nellie had the world record for traveling the globe, but not for long. Her entire trip was obviously published daily in the papers, and she wrote a book around the world in seventy-two days. 
which inspired others to take up the challenge. Uh, a few of months course. later, a man named George Francis Train... Please tell me he did the whole trip on trains. <laughs> did the trip in 67 days using almost exclusively trains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With a name like that, you kind of have to. It's mandatory. Um, 23 years later, Andrea Jaeger Schmidt, Henry Frederick, and John Henry Mayers beat the record again, completing the trip in 36 days. But she still was the first woman. Like, she's the first person to do that record, period. And she was a woman. I don't think another woman beat it until, like, the 1960s. That's so, really impressive. Yeah. Um, when she returned, Nellie kept on writing for the New York world for five more years. She's now a world-famous writer. Her name, Nellie Bly, is synonymous for a superstar writer. So if you, as a reporter, are doing amazing, you're a Nellie Bly. You're pulling a Nellie Bly. Like, that's, that's what her name's become now. <clears throat> In 1895, at the age of 30, Nellie retired from journalism and married a wealthy industrialist by the name of Robert L. Seaman. Now, Robert was 72. Okay, okay. I'm going to have to stop you there. What? Because this is not the first problematic last name we've heard. Her name is now Elizabeth Cochran Seaman. <laughs> <laughs> this is a That is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Cochran with an E, so it's sophisticated. <laughs> no, but here's the thing I don't get. At the age of 30, she marries a 72-year-old. Yeah. That's... That's an age gap, right? Huh? Okay, so Robert um, owned a massive factory called the Ironclad Manufacturing Company. Uh, he passed away nine years later in 1894. Shocker. Yeah, yeah, no. He lived to 81 in the 1800s, which is, he's basically a wizard. Yeah, no, he definitely is. I mean, yeah. what, a uh, world record at that time? Oh, hell yeah. Oldest man ever dies. Um, Nelly <laughs> she probably wrote an article about it. Oh, yeah, God, that's, yeah, she that's what she was after. Yeah, yeah. Inside scoop. <laughs> oh my God. It's the longest undercover article ever. <laughs> that's what this was. Uh, yes. I choose to believe that. <laughs> Anyways, um, so she, Nellie took over as the owner of the Ironclad Manufacturing Company. There, she invented a stackable garbage can to make life easier for garbage men. Um, then she found out that milk barrels were busting all over New York, so she invented a more durable milk barrel, which would be the standard up until, like, the 1940s when we stopped using milk barrels. So anytime she saw a problem, she's like, oh, I'll deal with that. I'll fix it. Um, both of which she patented. Mm -hmm. Now, using the name Elizabeth Cochran Seaman, she was one of the leading industrialists in the U.S. She launched a ton of reforms for the workers at the ironworks. She built a recreation center, multiple libraries, employee clubs, gymnasiums, all on site. But sadly, this cost money, and one of her managers was embezzling and stealing a shitload of cash under her nose, and the company went bankrupt in 1914. Do you want to say, though, at the time it was up, like, working at an ironworks factory in the 1800s that has two libraries, a gymnasium, and clubs, and a recreation center? Like, that's that is crazy. There's one place in America where that's happening, that's there. Everyone yeah. else, there's like, exploit them. Can, do we have a budget for whips? Get a budget for whips. But there they've got like a gymnasium and like two libraries. Because one wasn't enough. Anyways. Uh. Um, so, alone and broke at the age of 50, Nellie returned to journalism. Arthur Brisbane of the New York Journal gave her a job and Nellie was back at it. She started writing reports about New York orphans and neglected children. This promoted more reforms and prompted huge changes in orphanages across New York, upping the living standards for orphans. Then she started a help column so that people could write to her for advice. 
Whenever someone didn't have a job, they'd write to her, and she'd help them find a job that suited them. She raised money for widows. She helped fund more orphanages and a ton of other charities. Later in 1914, Nellie decided she needed a break. She's done a lot, so she took a vacation to England in 1914. Mm-hmm. When World War oh boy, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's in England. World War One bro- breaks out. So instead of staying there for a week, she decides, ah, fuck it, I'll stay here and report as a war correspondent for the Eastern Front to the New York Evening Journal. Uh, she is the first American woman war correspondent ever. I expect nothing less from her at this point. Her yeah. Reports are some of the most detailed ones we have. Uh, again, the whole idea of, oh god, the gl- greatest war in history is breaking out. I'll stay here and report on so it. She was supposed to be in England for a week. She yeah. stayed there five years. Oh god. <clears throat> While she was also there, the women's suffrage movement began in England, promoting for yeah. women's right to vote. So she got involved in that. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, did a ton of uh, promotion on that and wrote some reports. So, yeah, she stayed in Europe for five years reporting on the war and the suffrage movement until she received word that her mother had fallen ill and she headed home. Mm. Upon return to the U.S., Nellie continued writing, covering uh, U.S. suffrage movements and the woman's right to vote. And then, in 1922, at the age of 57, Nellie was out all night in the rain gathering information for a report when she caught pneumonia. Mm-hmm. She sadly passed away shortly after at St. Mark's Hospital in New York. She kept answering the questions to her uh, column up to the very morning she died. She was honored with glorious obituaries in newspapers across the world. She was, uh, But she was buried in a simple grave with a wooden cross in the Bronx at her request. One of the last things she wrote before she passed was, quote, I have never written a word that did not come from my heart. I never shall. Shall. Damn. It's a fucking woman right there. Uh, we need journalists like that today, man. God, Jesus Christ. How, this woman? Mm-hmm. Single-handedly would do the whole fake news bullshit. Holy crap. Yeah. Oh, God. Like, I was reading, like, I wish I could include more of her stuff, because I literally could just read, like, three pages of her shit. Because yeah, she no, was brutal. Like, she hammered the point home. Everyone else at that time was so proper, right? Mm. She was just brutal. It was amazing. Ugh. Anyways. I still, I still gotta imagine, you know that guy who wrote the article at the very beginning? Oh, yeah. The Just that observer, guy, Yeah, yeah. That guy's Wilson. reaction when he finds oh. out she owns, like, one of the biggest factories in I, New I, York. I, I, I want to point out, so I searched up Rasmus Wilson, who was this yeah. huge columnist for the Pittsburgh, okay? Yeah. The only thing I could find about him, no matter where I searched was that he wrote that shitty article. That is his entire legacy. His entire life is remembered by the fact that he was a terrible human being and that he inspired Nelly to become what she is. And that makes me a little bit happy inside that that's all he will be remembered for. Yeah. No. Um, also, Elizabeth, the uh, other racer, mm-hmm. uh, she caught pneumonia too and requested to be buried alongside Nelly because she had her as a role model. She was also a female journalist and that mm. was granted. So she's buried right next to Nelly. What? Which, I th- which I thought was kind of sweet. Yeah. Ah, well, that's that's Nellie Bly, genius journalist. <laughs> what a story, man. Yeah. Until next time, everyone. Yep, boy.